Introduction. A central question faces all of us, provided we take time out of our busy lives to ask and ponder it. It is the question of our personal destiny, more precisely the question about what we must think, believe and do to be acceptable to God, our Creator. The answers to this question in our time are as diverse and confusing as the number of divided denominations which characterize what we know as Christianity. The various Christian groups make their contradictory claims to provide a solution to life's puzzle. They propose to tell us what we must do to be saved, but they do not agree. Denominations are created, not least the vast Protestant movement which arose in opposition to the established Roman Catholic Church in 1517, when someone or a group of Bible students, quote, discover a better way to approach God and serve him. Often such movements stem from a new insight, the claim to recover a forgotten truth, the correction of a traditional teaching which is not securely based on Scripture. Much of the conflict which has arisen in regard to the so-called correct understanding of Jesus and the Bible has centered round matters of behavior. What is a Christian to do to be pleasing to God? For a substantial number of believers, the selection of the right day for rest and weekly worship has been a crucial issue. That question about weekly observance is often linked to other matters of, quote, law. For example, a decision not to eat certain foods listed as taboo in the Old Testament. The disagreements which follow when some believers conclude that days and foods are of vital importance for Christian performance and salvation have led to the formation of whole denominations, such as the Worldwide Church of God, founded by Herbert Armstrong, and the Seventh-day Adventists, who look to Ellen White as inspired founder. Once established, the denominational so-called distinctives become a matter of deeply embedded conviction and even of party spirit fostering a, quote, them and us mentality, which easily makes an objective biblical examination impossible. But examining the scriptures for truth is the essence of good discipleship, according to Acts 17, verse 11. If truth is to be achieved, the truth, that is, which makes us really free, we must be prepared to lay aside long-held convictions which we may have taken on when not adequately equipped to do accurate Bible study. It's an illusion to suppose that with goodwill and almost no training in reading the Bible, we can arrive at all the right positions on biblical matters of conduct and creed. Many of us have learned the hard way. Once exposed to the notion that Christianity is primarily a matter of accepting the Ten Commandments as given to Israel and following them in the letter, we were convinced, despite all evidence to the contrary, that we had joined, quote, the only true church. Building our own theological cocoon, 
we were unimpressed when others pointed out that our teachers and leaders had had no formal training in the history of Bible interpretation, little exposure to what others had written on crucial questions, and no knowledge of the original languages of Scripture. Surely, we argued, sincerity was enough to guarantee a sort of infallibility. Our leader really was God's end-time apostolic gift to the world, we argued, in our naivety and inexperience. And we were marked out by our faithful resting on Saturday. Only years later did we become wise enough to think that we might have been misled. The issue we tackle in this book has to do with some aspects of the way to salvation, and particularly the matter of obedience to Jesus. Since Jesus said often and emphatically that following him and his teachings is the essence of success before God. The question, however, which needs careful treatment is, what is entailed in obedience? Even a superficial exposure to the Bible reveals that much is said about believing in relation to behavior. Much of the New Testament is dedicated to defining what God requires, not according to the law of Moses under the Old Covenant, but under the New Covenant taught and ratified by Jesus as the final agent of God, the prophet who was to supersede even Moses as we read in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 to 18, and in John 1, verse 17. Reflection over many years of teaching and study has brought us to the settled conviction that one of the most fatal misunderstandings of Jesus and the New Covenant occurs when we try to mix two different systems, the old and the new. God is no longer dealing with mankind in the terms he authorized through Moses. If, with full sincerity and a desire to obey God, we approach him on a basis which he does not prescribe for us under the new covenant brought by Jesus, we are liable to inflict upon ourselves a terrible theological wound. Ignorance of the new covenant is as divisive as it is destructive of spirituality. But such misunderstanding often parades as so-called Christian. We must gain the freedom which Jesus promised, and it's a freedom based on the spirit of truth and not on our own constructions built on a confusing mixing of two covenants. Moreover, Jesus did not give all of the truth during his historical ministry he continued to speak through chosen apostles as he had promised. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. You read that in John 16, verses 12 to 14. All sorts of abuses can arise when verses of the Bible are pulled out of their context 
and made to communicate what was intended for one period of time, but not necessarily for everyone for all time. The classic example is found in a popular use of Malachi 3 verse 10 to impose a tithing system on the church. However, only a few verses later, in Malachi 4 verse 4, the prophet exhorts his audience to, quote, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws which I gave at Horeb for all Israel. Discernment in regard to God's dealings with mankind under different circumstances is required if we are to determine what God wants of us today. To that question, the content of obedience for us as Christians, we address the following pages. Convinced that freedom in Christ is the only successful formula for finding the faith as the New Testament presents it. When the one church unites in that freedom as exponents of the gospel of the kingdom and with the Jew-Gentile barrier broken down as Christ desired it to be, the faith will be vibrant and effective. As long as misunderstandings over the law and its relationship to the new covenant divide us, the witness of the body of Christ will continue to be damaged. Christians recognize Moses as the mediator of the old covenant established between the God of Israel and his people. Exodus 24 records the confirmation of the covenant arrangements when the people agreed to comply with all the words written in the book of the covenant. Blood was then sprinkled on the altar and on the people. The congregation of Israel agreed to do, quote, everything the Lord has said. The blood then officially ratified the covenant on the basis of, quote, all the words which Moses had received from God. Jesus is introduced in the New Testament as the messenger of the new covenant. Jesus is contrasted with Moses. I quote, The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Matthew records five blocks of Jesus' new covenant teaching, ending with the repeated phrase, quote, When Jesus had finished saying these things. You'll find that in Matthew 7 and verse 28 also four other times. Jesus then shed his own blood to bring that new covenant into force. There are matters of critical importance in this issue of discerning what God requires under the Christian new covenant. Not to advance from the old to the new is a very serious danger for believers. The tendency to revert to the old covenant and mix it with the new called forth the apostles' sternest warnings and indignation. I quote, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then. And do not let yourselves be burdened again 
with a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you get circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. That's a quotation from Galatians chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, and Galatians 5, verses 1 to 6. Truth indeed makes us free, but freedom is attainable only when we discover what that liberating truth is. This means paying careful attention to the gospel or words of Jesus and of Paul, who was the intrepid exponent of Jesus' great commission to preach the one gospel of the kingdom to all nations, and who desired passionately that Jews and Gentiles form one harmonious church based on the freedom of the new covenant. We invite readers to accept the challenge of rethinking, if necessary, what it means in terms of lifestyle and belief to serve the Lord Jesus Messiah, the bearer of the new covenant. We have dealt in more detail with the wider issue of the gospel of the kingdom in our books, The Coming Kingdom of the Messiah, A Solution to the Riddle of the New Testament, and my other book, Our Fathers Who Aren't in Heaven, The Forgotten Christianity of Jesus the Jew, and in our free monthly magazine since 1998. All of these then are found at our website,